welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News political director Rick Klein. And I'm ABC senior congressional correspondent Mary Bruce. And Mary, we have a re-election campaign. President Trump, who basically never stopped campaigning. Uh, (laughs) Since the day he was inaugurated, he has been running for re-election, has formally launched his campaign for re-election. And you hear this from incumbents all the time, that they want to make a race a choice and not a referendum. We know the Democrats, how they want to frame this race. It's up or down on President Trump, uh, where they kind of like their chances. Uh, Here is the primary system just gets started with the first debates only a week away. But from the Republican side, from President Trump, he is trying to lay out this 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 race as a choice. And man, if you listen to what he has to say, Mary, it is a stark choice at that. Very stark. Look, what struck me as really fascinating about the way that the president rolled out yet again his his reelection campaign was how familiar it sounded. Right. The president uh, in this huge rally down in Florida outlining in your right very stark terms what he feels is at stake in this election. But it was a lot of the kind of stark terms that we've been hearing over the last two years. He, you know, may have tried out a new campaign slogan, uh, but he, in many ways, it was a similar speech that we've been hearing. Uh, from the president all along. Yeah, it really, it, it, for a campaign that never really ended, the, the 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 rhetoric hasn't changed very much. I mean, you close your eyes and, and you're back in 2016. Uh, maybe a more professional operation, more bells and whistles, more Trumpian flourishes, uh, more playing up of the fact that he's now President Trump. Uh, but the playlist was the same. All those, all those songs, up to and including, you can't always get what you want as he walks <laughs> off the stage, which has always been a strange choice for me, uh, and into some of the lines. And you're right. I mean, Look, listen to what he had to say uh, on this issue of collusion and uh, look, listen to who makes a cameo appearance in this soundbite. The only collusion was committed by the Democrats, the fake news media and their operatives and the people who funded the phony dossier, crooked Hillary Clinton and the DNC. Crooked Hillary's back, uh, Mary, and uh, she's, of course, not a candidate. But in the framing of this race, it seems like she is going to be a major player. Rick, he talked more about Hillary Clinton in this speech than he did about his current 2020 opponents. Uh, it's why this felt so familiar. I mean, close your eyes and you really did think for a second that you were back in 2016. The big question and the challenge for the president is going to be whether that message still resonates. Clinton is no longer his opponent. Uh, are these attacks against her going to be enough to rally not just his supporters, but those voters who, who may be on the fence? Now, obviously, it is very early, and I'm sure he will ramp up those attacks against his Democratic opponents as we get further and further into this campaign. But it was just remarkable how much time and and energy he spent still going after his old foe here. Yeah, and you heard you heard more about the emails in this in this speech as well. And again, it's just an initial speech, but in terms of the framing, this is something uh, that the, the the president had a lot of time to to prepare around. And as he began to to look at the Democratic field, we've heard Democrats say lots of. Lots of interesting things in terms of policy proposals. That field is still developing, but you can see the battle lines drawn. And, and, and of course, with this president, uh, which in addition to being untouched by time, I think untouched by facts as well in, in what he says uh, as a candidate and as president, uh, this is what he this is how he is casting any of the Democrats um, who, who might be tuning in to uh, to listen to what he has to say. Our radical Democrat opponents are driven by hatred, prejudice and rage. They want to destroy you and they want to destroy our country as we know it. I mean, I, I think it's just worth 
pausing to reflect on the words the president's using here. Because, Mary, as you, these last couple of years of listening to Donald Trump has, um, has changed our perceptions of things. But this is the president of the United States saying that the radical Democrats, so these, all of his opponents he's lumping together, driven by hatred, prejudice, and rage, and want to destroy you. Want to destroy you. It's some pretty dark language, right? I mean, the president went on to make several unfounded claims against uh, his opponent, opponents and the opposing party as well. And you're right. We have kind of in some ways, I think, uh, as a culture become a little numb to these attacks. But this is the sitting president of the United States using this kind of language to describe his political opponents. You know, if you take a second to, to let that sink in, uh, it is a pretty remarkable moment that, that we are in. And going back to the fact that this is just the beginning of the campaign, you can only assume that that rhetoric is going to be ratcheted up the further we get into this. But it is, going back to your original point, very clear that the president, look, he's not going after one opponent or another. He is trying to paint the entire Democratic Party with some very uh, broad strokes uh, and some pretty dark strokes, too. And what's int- part of what's interesting to me, Mary, is that the ultimate outsider, the guy coming in to crash the whole system, is the insider now. Yeah. As the president of the United States, he is still running against the swamp, still running against the system still running against um, these kind of undescribed nebulous forces that in his in his vision of things are trying to stand against progress, trying to stand against uh, the, the, the vision and the dreams of the voters who brought him into office, the people in that crowd, that overflow crowd there in Orlando. Take a listen to how he is framing the choice based on values. Our political opponents look down with hatred on our values and with utter disdain for the people whose lives they want to run. That's the way they've been doing it. So uh, to me, that's that's a key connection. That's the tissue that, that connects the president and his own very personal time in office to his supporters. Uh, and that's what raises a lot of interesting issues about how the Democrats frame their race, because they're having a raging debate right now in the party that gets at um, lots of issues that are hot-button ones around health care and around immigration and the like, and whether to impeach the president and the like. And this president is jousting against that and, and framing it as a choice about values. Yeah. And the president says, look, it's us versus them, right? And you do raise an interesting point about the system, right? The president has always uh, railed against the system and argued that he's the one who can come in and shake things up, right? Shake up the way that Washington is run. Well, now he is part of Washington. Um, And does he need to change his political calculus when instead of being able to just come in and run against something, he now has to defend his record, right? He has a political record in a way that he didn't have uh, four years ago. And so to see the president try to walk that fine line, it will be interesting. And whether he's going to have to, and in some ways he probably will, tweak his playbook. But it is very clear that going into this, he is making the, this big, bold argument, right? This is not necessarily him dialing down on on policy or even, as you know, which is important to know, running on his record. A lot of people would say he should just be out there talking about the economy, which is doing so well, and that that is really where his should, focus should be. Instead, he's setting this up as sort of this big, almost philosophical debate about American values and what he says his opponents want to do to, to destroy those values, essentially. And, and Mary, to me, the... the, the the soundbite I want to queue up next tells so much of the story because the way that the president has governed has been to rely on his base and to, to remember who brought him to the dance and to give, as you hear in this in this piece, to give his own voters, his his base, 
a piece of the action, a slice of the game, a, a stake in this, and to make it about them and not about him. Um, th- this this subject of erasing, I think, is really, really intriguing. Take a listen. They went after my family, my business, my finances, my employees, almost everyone that I've ever known or worked with, but they are really going after you. That's what it's all about. Not about us, it's about you. They tried to erase your vote, erase your legacy of the greatest campaign and the greatest election probably in the history of our country. And that, to me, is a valuable rhetorical tool for this president because it encapsulates the Mueller report. It encapsulates so much of the scandal that's enveloped this White House at various stages. It it, it, it captures um, so many of the misdeeds of the of the Trump cabinet, of the Trump family businesses, of the issues his children have been involved in, and says, look, all of these things you're hearing about, it's noise because it's about you. They're trying mm-hmm. to erase you. And this is the president essentially playing the victim in many ways, right? Saying that the system has been out to get him, that, that Washington and the swamp are against this president. And he's using that uh, as a way to, to try and relate in many ways to his supporters, right? To, to that forgotten American to say, I understand when you feel that the system is out to get you. And to bring it to the events that are going on in Washington this week, um, a, a key moment just today, Mary uh, Hope Hicks, the former White House communications director, longtime campaign spokeswoman uh, for the Trump campaign, uh, on Capitol Hill to answer questions about the Mueller report, the first top Trump official to be called up there since the report uh, itself was released. Of course, there's a lot of issues that she can't talk about, but to many Democrats, that's very problematic. They want, they still want answers on this as the investigative front goes on, even without impeachment. Yeah, and this is a big moment for Democrats and this ongoing, seemingly never-ending fight between House Democrats and uh, the administration over what Democrats say is the administration stonewalling of all of their requests. And yet today, finally, they are going to be able to, to, to grill a member of the president's inner circle for the first time since the release of the report. And I think it's important to remember just what a key player Hope Hicks is. Um, she's such a familiar face by the president's side. She was a key aide to him during the campaign. Then, of course, the White House communications director. She was by the president's side for so many uh, key moments that, that came up in the Mueller report. In fact, she's one of the most frequently cited witnesses in the Mueller report. And, right. and so Democrats right now, as we speak, are, are questioning her about incidents of alleged obstruction. They also, I'm told, want to ask her about those hush money payments that were made to Stormy Daniels. The question is, how forthcoming is she going to be? Because we know that the Trump administration and the president has directed her not to speak about her time as his senior advisor. They believe that she should be immune from that line of questioning. And that sets up a fight uh, over that big, never-ending question up here over executive privilege. And how far is this administration going to go to prevent someone like Hope Hicks from being able to answer these questions? And Mary, how does this fit in in your mind in covering the Hill to the, the larger issues around impeachment that um, that the Democratic caucus is right now wrestling with. We're going to talk in a few moments to the, the House Minority Whip, Steve Calise. We know where he stands on impeachment, but it is an active question that Nancy Pelosi and her colleagues are, are trying to navigate. Um, what, how does a Hope Hicks testifying and all of the document demands, how does that all fit in? Well, in some ways, Democrats would say, look, they, they are having some success in being able to gather the information and pursue their investigations. If you are uh, a Democratic leader and someone who's urging caution 
uh, as you hear that drumbeat to impeachment, they can point to Hope Hicks coming in and say, look, this is working, right? Like, let's follow the facts. Let's continue to, pr- to pursue uh, our line of inquiry. Let's not rush to impeachment. On the other hand, there is no denying that, that the pressure is growing uh, almost daily as the number of Democrats here on the Hill uh, and presidential candidates continue to be ratcheting up that pressure and calling for impeachment. But so far, while you've heard Speaker Pelosi maybe change her rhetoric a little bit, she's thrown some red meat to to the political base and to those Democrats who are urging impeachment. She is staying the course and she is not budging. And she is insisting that, that they need to follow the facts, as she says, they need to build a compelling case against the president. And she would argue, I assume, that that, that hearing from Hope Hicks uh, and getting some of these questions answered is part of that process. I, I think that's right. And, you know, she just just today ruled out the idea of uh, of of a formal censure, basically saying she said as much that, uh, that this would be a day at the beach or maybe a day at the golf course for President mm-hmm. Trump. If you got the goods, you got to do it. But a lot of Democrats will argue that she, that they, the goods are there. We're seeing a growing number, as you mentioned, of House Democrats who say it's time to do it, including a few. The first couple, of first dribble of ones who represent districts that uh, that swung to the Democrats' favor, that were the majority makers. That's still the minority. There's still a whole lot of no votes inside the Democratic caucus, Mary. Um, is it your sense that, that that Pelosi recognizes this at this stage and that uh, and that she is doing what she can to try to hold off these calls? Yeah, and she's walking a very fine line. And I do think the numbers here matter. Look, you have now roughly 60, a little over 60 House Democrats who are calling for impeachment. That is not a critical mass that's going to force Pelosi's hand. But she does have to you know, pay attention to that. She does have to recognize their concerns. And in some ways, you're seeing her pay some lip service to that as well. Pelosi here, and we've talked about this, it seems she's simply trying to buy herself time in many ways. She continues to argue that the best way to beat Donald Trump is not through an impeachment inquiry, but at the ballot box. And that's because she you know, is well aware that impeaching this president could backfire politically. She feels the president is goading them into impeachment because he thinks this would be good for his base, that it would energize his base, be good for him politically, especially as you head into an election. And because the political reality is simply that even if the House goes ahead and impeaches the president, it's going to hit a big brick wall over in the Senate where Republicans are in charge and they have no uh, intention uh, right now, at least, uh, of of impeaching this president. Yeah, and the president and the fit almost almost too perfectly from the Democrats' perspective into exactly the rhetoric that we heard from the president in his launch speech. Exactly. When he, when he talks about erasing his legacy, erasing the votes of people that brought him to office, there is no more powerful statement that he could make about that than an unsuccessful impeachment push. Uh, and, and even if awful things came out in the course of an impeachment inquiry, uh, and even if the president were impeached actually in the House, an acquittal in the Senate would be a powrful thing. We know what he says about the Mueller report, wrongfully saying that it's that it found uh, no obstruction and no collusion. Um, but if, 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 they, if the Democrats tried again and tried to be impeachment and fell short, that to me is Nancy Pelosi's worst nightmare. And it may be the worst nightmare of 2020 candidates as well. And based on what we heard from the president last night at this rally, it is a really serious concern for Democrats up here that the president would argue to his supporters and to voters that, look, I'm being impeached. And it's not just about the president's behavior, but based on what we heard last night, he would likely argue that this is the system. This is Washington out to not just get the president, but out to get you know his supporters as well. All right, Mary, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be joined by the Republican whip, the minority whip in the House of Representatives, Congressman Steve Scalise of Louisiana. Joining us now on Powerhouse Politics, the House Minority Whip, Congressman Steve Scalise, Republican of Louisiana. Thank you so much for being here. Well, it's great to be with you, Mary and Rick. 
Now, we know it has been now two years since you suffered those life-threatening injuries uh, when a gunman opened fire during practice for the annual congressional baseball game. You reflect on that experience and what is really your remarkable personal road to recovery in your book, Back in the Game, which has now just been released in paperback. And we want to we want to get to all of that in just a minute, Congressman. But first, if we could start with some of the news uh, of the day. The president, as Rick and I were just discussing, was out there last night in Florida, officially kicking off his presidential reelection. Thousands of supporters out at this rally. And the president made his case to voters. Right. But he, but he also struck a pretty familiar tone. Uh, he spent a lot of time going after Democrats in some pretty stark terms, but, but also going back to attacking Hillary Clinton. Is that a winning strategy, you think, for the president or does he need to, to update the playbook a little bit? Well, the president's got a great story to tell, and, and it was really good to see such an enthusiastic packed house. I mean, he's still uh, when he goes and speaks around the country, has overflow crowds. I was with him in South Louisiana a few weeks ago when he came down to talk about a, a massive energy project. Uh, that's that's going to be uh, helping our allies all around the world because of his strong energy policy. Uh, but in the end, I, I hear him mostly talking about the economy and how well the economy is doing because of the things we've done, like cutting taxes for families so that they have more money in their paychecks and so that you see companies raising the wages for their workers and so people have more money in their paychecks from both higher wages and lower taxes and how he's gotten regulations under control. And inevitably, you're going to talk about the matchup. And, you know, he can reflect some on the matchup that he had with Hillary Clinton. But he's also talking about what you're seeing on the far left, how they're moving towards socialism in this this move where Bernie Sanders version of government control versus freedom is going to be, I think, a prevailing theme in next year's election. And so the president's already starting to talk about that as well. Now, you write in your book about how, how after this horrific shooting by what was a politically motivated gunman, that, that there was this tremendous moment of unity, right? The the two parties coming together, and there was a collective call to, to dial back the political rhetoric. But but here we are two years later, um, and the president last night, you know, he said his opponents are driven by, quote, hatred, prejudice, and rage. He said they want to destroy our country as we know it. If we're going to change how we talk to each other, does that have to start at the top? Have you urged the president at all to to tone it down? Well, I think everybody needs to tone it down and be aware of their rhetoric. But at the same time, what, what I've been very outspoken about is when people incite violence in their rhetoric. And the president has not done that. I have seen some people do it, mostly on the Democrat side, but some on the Republican side. And I've been very vocal about calling it out. Whether it's a Republican or Democrat, uh, there's no place for inciting violence or for carrying out acts of violence because you disagree with somebody's political views. You didn't hear any any shades of that, though, when he talks about the the other side being driven by hatred, prejudice, rage. Is that fair rhetoric? Is that in bounds? Well, considering some of the the wild accusations, baseless accusations and and, and vile name calling that's been thrown at the president, Look, he's a rough and tumble guy. I mean, he comes from the world of New York real estate, and he's been like this uh, before he was a candidate for president. You know, it's his style, and, you know, you see him on TV. uh, But I also get to work with him in person. And I will tell you, when you're in a meeting with President Trump, uh, you know, whether we're working on health care policy, tax policy, immigration policy, he's all business. And he's focusing on getting results. He wants to deliver results for the, the American people that he made commitments to, and he's been following through on those commitments, and you're seeing the benefits. I mean, the economy 
Uh, it's probably the hottest economy we've seen in generations. The American economy is now the envy of the world again uh, because of the actual results, the policies of President Trump. And in the end, I think that's what he's going to be judged on. Uh, you know, he's, there are going to be debates, and I'm sure the debates will get a little heated. Uh, that's not new to American politics, by the way. Again, you know, keep it, keep it focused on the issues. Uh, don't incite violence. But at the same time, he's got a great story to tell, and I see him tell that story when he's uh, doing a lot of these uh, 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 town halls and uh, rallies that he does that, again, to, to overflow crowds. Congressman Scalise, you mentioned health care policy in particular, and the president uh, told George Stephanopoulos a few days ago, I'm sure you saw um, the, the special on Sunday night, that, uh, that there will be another uh, Republican health care plan in the next month or two. Uh, will there be a, an actual plan presented by House and Senate Republicans and the president as the plan to replace Obamacare? Is that, is that going to happen? I think it's important that we show a true alternative about how you can actually get better health care, lower costs for families. Uh, you've got to restore the doctor-patient relationship. Get the federal government, these unelected bureaucrats, out of the business of telling you what you can and can't buy. Let families buy what they want that's best for their family, wherever they want to buy it. Right now, you can't even buy insurance, health insurance across state lines like you can buy every single other product. And so you don't have the real competition that leads to lower prices. We need to protect pre-existing conditions and we do that, and I've spoken to the president about this specifically. He feels very strong uh, that the plan we put out needs to be focused on two primary things. One is lowering health care costs for families, uh, restoring that doctor-patient relationship, and protecting people with pre-existing conditions so that they can't be discriminated against in pricing. And so those are the kind of things uh, that I think we do need to lay out because the Democrats now have even moved beyond Obamacare. Uh, they're talking about this plan uh, where you literally would have government-controlled health care. They would get rid of the private insurance market. Look, there's over 130 million people who get buy their health care through, whether it's through their company, uh, they buy it on their own, but they buy a plan that's good for their family, and the Democrats' plan gets rid of that. It actually bans those kind of plans. Uh, again, we need to get out of this business of government control of your health care. You ought to be making those decisions with your family, not some unelected bureaucrat in Washington. And in terms of timing, when do you think we might see that plan? We obviously know that health care is one of the top, if not the top, uh, issue for, for many voters. Is it important, you think, that Republicans and the president actually put out you know, a detailed plan before the election? Absolutely. And it's important we take the time to get it right, which is what we're doing. And we're working with a lot of people. I mean, there are a lot of people that, that really care about uh, fixing the many, many things that are broken in health care and making it work better for families. And again, this gets to the core of what the president's message has been, is let's deliver results for the hardworking families who have been left behind too often by government. Uh, let's make government work better for people. And, and health care policy is one of those big areas because government control is not working. It's actually leading to higher costs and fewer options for families. You know, even a person with a pre-existing condition today, in many cases, are paying 20 percent more than they did last year. Their deductible is as high as $10,000. That's not access to health care. In many ways, it shuts off their ability to afford health care. We need to make it more affordable. And again, let people choose what's best for them and their family and buy it from wherever they want to buy it, even if it's another state. 
Congressman Scalise, the, the, the president uh, tweeted that uh, we're just days away now from the beginning of, of massive deportations. Millions, he said, of illegal aliens will be deported in the coming days. We're only about a year removed from the child separation issue bubbling over and the president reversing that policy. Is, it, is this actually going to happen? Or do, you, do you believe that we are on the verge of seeing millions of deportations? And if so, are there, are there enough safeguards in place to make sure that we don't see a replay of those images from last year with, with, child, with children being ripped from their families? Well, first of all, President Trump has wanted to work with Congress to end that policy where you can reunite families again, where you can secure America's border. And then let's focus on the, the loopholes that are creating this magnet where you have literally thousands of people every single day coming across our border illegally. Uh, it's unprecedented. We haven't seen numbers this high since 2006. In last month, we had over 140,000 people cross our border illegally in just one month. And so what the president has said is, you know, look at the broken asylum laws. Uh, look at this, this ridiculous catch and release law, the, the Flores court decision that's forcing the separation of ch- children with their families. President Trump wants to reverse that. He wants to fix those broken laws. I was in a meeting with President Trump offered to Nancy Pelosi to fix the DACA problem. And she said no. She walked away from that because she didn't want to solve the problem. Uh, and look, when Barack Obama was president, he had a supermajority in the House and in the Senate. And not one time did they bring a bill to fix these broken immigration laws. I'm glad the president's focused on securing our border. And it includes a lot of things. But look, when you've got people coming across the border every single day in the thousands per day, they're given court dates. We've seen now over 90 percent of the people that come across illegally that are given a date to show up in court for their asylum claim. Uh, in many cases, it's months later, or years later. Ninety percent of them aren't showing up. Ninety percent. That's who the president's talking about going and finding. Uh, why did they come into this country illegally, make a false asylum claim and then just disappear somewhere into our country? Uh, we've got to get control of our border. I'm glad Mexico's helping us, by the way. The president negotiated that deal with Mexico. And so instead of having tariffs uh, with Mexico, Mexico agreed that they're going to put thousands of people on their southern border to finally get control of this problem. And it's working, by the way. It's actually starting to yield results just in the last few days. So I'm glad the president's focused on securing the border. I think most Americans want to see us get get a, a control over our border. Let's turn to that other issue that is hovering over Capitol Hill, and that is impeachment. We obviously are seeing the growing calls from Democrats, growing pressure on your Democratic colleagues here in the House. There is an argument that impeachment isn't necessarily a bad thing politically for the president. Even he said recently that the Mueller report fired up his base. Do you agree? Is there a world in which you would want to see impeachment just to expose all these questions and defeat it? No, I think it's ridiculous, and it's it's so counterproductive and dangerous uh, for them, the Democrats, to be focused. Just It's almost like an obsession they have and a hatred they have towards the president that they only want to focus on going after him personally, going after his family. You've seen they tried to hold the attorney general in contempt of Congress, not because he did anything wrong, but because he wouldn't break the law. They wanted him to turn over a document that would have been – it would have caused him to violate federal law – And so because he didn't do it, they want to hold him in contempt. They want to impeach the president. The country's fed up with this kind of foolishness. The committee, by the way, that has jurisdiction over the border is also the committee that's only focused on impeaching the president. Why don't they stop this mad impeachment witch hunt and focus on actually solving big problems like getting secure 
a secure border. In solving this crisis right now, we have over 200 kids a day that are coming across illegally have big health problems. And the president is trying to make sure they have the funding to take care of these kids, and they're running out of money. The president identified this problem over a month ago. Speaker Pelosi still won't bring a bill to the floor to solve that crisis, a humanitarian crisis at the border between the United States and Mexico. Uh, instead, they're focused on impeachment. And so people are fed up and saying, look, stop this mad witch hunt to impeach the president. We have an election next year to decide who our president's going to be. And they're going to go and make their case, both sides. Uh, that's where it should be resolved, at the ballot box. Just because you lost in 2016 doesn't mean you can just focus on just going there after and harassing the person that, that won, was duly elected by the people of this country. Uh, let him do his job, and let's focus on Congress doing their job, too. And before we let you go, Congressman, I, I want to ask about the congressional baseball game. Uh, it's coming up. Um, you, you write in your book, Back in the Game, now on paperback, about that truly magical moment last year where the ball found you at second base. Uh, I, I get chills even just talking about the moment. It is a really a special, special moment. Um, and uh, you're swarmed by, by teammates, Democrats and Republicans alike. Uh, I, I want to ask about your preparations for this year's game. And are you prepared to guarantee a hit, a base hit against Cedric Richmond, who's got to be the single greatest player in the history of the congressional baseball, the best pitcher ever to, to take a uniform in those games. Now, now Rick, it's, it's, it's a loaded question you asked, but, but you know what? I'm going to give you a direct answer. I, uh, I, I will tell you it was a magical moment, and I, I was just so blessed. Uh, there were a lot of miracles along the way from, you know, from the baseball game, the shooting two years ago, uh, just for all of us to make it that day. Uh, make it out alive. It was the heroism of our Capitol Police and law enforcement, uh, other heroes like Brad Wenstrup. And I talked about all that in Back in the Game, really as a way to highlight uh, and tell the story through the eyes of those heroes and, and the miracles that allowed us to be here. And then, of course, last year in the game, they put me out there at second base to start. They let me start the game, which was an honor. I could hardly move left or right. I could barely stand up. But uh, that first pitch, literally the first pitch, Raul Ruiz, the Democrat from California, hits the ball. Uh, I had to backhand it. You know, the momentum brought me to the ground. And I, I knew I, I said, I got to make the throw. And, and God helped uh, get it there and made the first out. And it, it truly was a magical moment and one I'll never forget. Uh, but, look, I agree with your assessment of Cedric Richmond. He's, he's maybe the best. You know, Steve Largent had a good run when he was in Congress winning for the Republicans. But Cedric is as good as they get. Uh, but we need to beat him this year, and uh, that's going to be our objective. I want to get a hit off of him. I don't know. Look, if I can run and make it to first base safe, that tells you they've got serious problems on the <laughs> But uh, it's a lot of fun. We're going to raise over half a million dollars for local D.C. charities, and it's a great tradition. It's, it goes back almost 100 years, and it's a time where Republicans and Democrats, for all the, the vitriol you see on TV, it's a way for us to come together and do something really positive. You know, it's competitive. We compete, but we also – build really good relationships across the aisle with the members of both teams. And we're, we know we're doing it for a good cause. And, and look, again, I mean, I wrote about this in my book back in the game. Uh, it was a special moment to be able to participate in this game, uh, but there was a horrific accident. And it could have been a tragedy, uh, an American tragedy, but instead it turned in to a story about how there are so many good people in this world. And I focus on the good, not the bad. That's what's helped me get better. I still do physical therapy every, you know, every week to, to get better and walk without a crutch by the end of this year. That's going to be my next goal. And, uh, and look, the, the miracles and the support, the prayers from people all across the country have been incredible at helping me get better. 
All right, Congressman Steve Scalise, we wish you luck at that game, particularly against Cedric Richmond, your good friend and colleague from Louisiana. <laughs> uh, uh, luck, best of luck to you, and, and, and of course, best wishes in your continued recovery. It's inspiring to us all. Thank you, Congressman. Thanks so much, uh, Rick and Mary. Appreciate it. Thank you. And Mary, I know you, you were there and covered the, the shooting, the aftermath of the shooting, uh, and um, done a lot of reporting around that. Uh, the, 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 the scene that came together on that initial night in 2017, just weeks after the shooting, and then again last year, it really it was a special moment that seems to stand a little bit apart from the, the, day, the day-to-day of politics. It was remarkable, and it has been remarkable to see Congressman Scalise recover, to hear him Uh, speaking about his own experience, it it really is an amazing thing to see. And I have to encourage all of our listeners to, if you're in Washington, go out to the game. It is really one of those rare, amazing moments in Washington where everyone puts all of the partisanship, all of the griping aside, besides, you know, a little bit of healthy trash talk. But (laughs) it is such a fun event and for a wonderful cause. And it is an amazing moment to once again sort of reflect on all of those uh, congressman who survived uh, that shooting two years ago and all of the heroes who helped to, to, to make that happen and to put them back out on the field. All right. That does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. Thank you to Mary Bruce and thanks to our entire team. Trevor Hastings behind the controls, Angie Yak and Avery Miller. We hope you have a great week. We'll see you back here with our next edition of Powerhouse Politics.